Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. In this third episode, taking yet another deep dive into the Doug Wilson religious empire, we're going to pull back the curtain on the many scandals that have been attached to Wilson over the decades. Yes, you heard that right. It's not just one or two small things that have happened through no fault of his own. As we're going to see in exhaustive detail, Wilson has been associated with a number of scandals, each one seemingly more disturbing than the last. But before we get into this monster, it's another two-plus-hour episode, I just wanted to say that on the one hand, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback about the first one I did, where I looked in-depth at Wilson's backstory as well as his theological influences. And then, of course, I did the episode with Kate West after that. A lot of listeners stated that despite the fact that it was over two hours in length, what they appreciated was the in-depth research that I'd done, the way I'd broken down some of the more dense theological language in ways that made sense. I'm also going to mention this on the break, and I've talked about this a little bit with the Kate West episode. There were several people who began supporting the show on Patreon as a result of that episode, and I'll maybe mention them again later, but I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all those who have supported me, not just recently, but over the years now. And I think in a way for me, it validates what I'm doing, and the feedback that I've gotten is it's encouraging to me in that it lets me know that my work, it really is helping people, especially those who are recovering from some of the more harmful effects that religion can have on us. And speaking of episodes, I'd originally planned, as I mentioned, on doing this one in a one single episode. But what happened was when I got into it, there was just so much material that it ended up being about, was going to be more than three hours in length. So after a lot of deliberation, and I got some good advice from our friends over at the Examining Doug Wilson, the Facebook page and Twitter account, I've decided I'm going to do it a little bit differently. So this one's going to be about another two hours again, but it's just going to focus on the many scandals that have been attached to Wilson. But even then, there's a couple of things that have just come up recently that I just simply don't have time to get into. These things just broke last December, not even a month ago. But if you want to find out more, as I mentioned, our friends over at the Examining Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, if you look at their Facebook page, they've done a really good job of detailing this latest one. It's, it's got something to do with Wilson as something what he calls his so-called no-quarter November. Apparently he does every year. He sets something on fire and he makes some outrageous statement. Anyway, something about he endorsed a Christian author who, as it turned out, is part of the kinism or kinist movement. Now, if you don't know what that means, you're going to have to go look it up. I'm not going to be able to devote any more time to it here. It's just going to add more to this episode. But going back to this episode, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to break this one up. I'm going to do another one just focusing on Doug Wilson's toxic and harmful theology. So this one's just going to look at the scandals around him. But trust me, it's still going to be a monster deep dive, just like I did in the first episode. And I'll also just say, before we get into this topic of Wilson and his numerous scandals is really, really, really disturbing to note, again, how many evangelical leaders are willing to mainstream Wilson. I mentioned before 
we have John Piper and others. Well, off the back of my first episode, someone tagged me into a tweet. Turns out it was a clip of Kirk Cameron on his TBN show called Takeaways. Really catchy name for that show, isn't it? But he recently interviewed Doug Wilson on the issue of the modern interpretations of Jesus's resurrection. And basically it was Cameron tossing a series of softball questions at Wilson about just how does Jesus's resurrection impact not just on believers, but indeed the whole world. And of course, Wilson had his chance to spout his theological views. And even more disturbing are the comments on that YouTube clip. My God, stuff like, Doug Wilson is officially my favorite Christian leader today. Another person said, hands down, the best person you, that's Cameron, had on. And finally, someone said, I love this. Kirk Cameron and Doug Wilson have both been influential in my life. And on and on it goes. And this is exactly why I think it's so critically important for me, as well as others who are doing just incredible work on Wilson's malign influence to get the word out. So many people in evangelicalism do not know who Wilson is and what his story is and what he's done and said over the years. They only see the persona on a show like Kirk Cameron's. And once again, I'm going to give a huge thank you to the at Examining Moscow Twitter account, which is, of course, linked to the Examining Doug Wilson and Moscow, Idaho Facebook page. Not only is that page, it's an absolute goldmine of resources. If you want to do more research into Wilson, more than I've done, some from that group of concerned evangelical pastors and church leaders have taken the time. I've chatted with them on Zoom calls. They've talked to me about my research, given me some really good insights, kind of helped me, you know, point me in the right direction when I got stuck on a couple occasions. So thank you once again to those from the at examining Moscow Twitter account and Facebook page. So, all right, that's enough of the introduction. What you're going to have to do now, go get yourself a cup of tea, maybe pause this podcast, go get a coffee. You might need something even stronger than that. You're going to have to sit down and relax. As I said, this episode is going to be another monster. It's going to be over two hours. It's a deep dive into Wilson. So after listening for a bit, like I said, you might want to drop a hit of rum, maybe a little bit of whiskey into that coffee. Uh, If you're listening to this while you're driving, take care. You don't get involved in road rage after what you're going to hear. Buckle in, strap yourself in, get yourself ready for this in-depth look at the many scandals attached to Doug Wilson. Just 
turn back the clock to 1950s Eisenhower America and say, okay, let's just freeze it there. The logic of our current rebellion was already at work. And the culprit is this dogma of secularism, that we can be good and right and decent and freedom-loving without Jesus. That's simply not the case. Christians have been told over and over and over, we've evolved, we've progressed to this point where a religious foundation for us here in the modern world is simply unthinkable. It's simply impossible. I'd say, well, it's still a free country. Watch me think it. The collapse of secularism should show us that we can't go back to a pretended neutrality. We have to realize it's Christ or chaos. And if you will not have Christ, you are embracing the chaos. The world needs saving. The answer has been given to us in the gospel. We have that answer. And so what are we to do? Well, we're to save the world. What you just heard was a clip of Doug Wilson's latest project called How to Save the World in 11 Simple Steps. Apparently, this is a new release coming soon from Doug Wilson and his own Canon Press. Now, there's just so many things I want to say about this, but a couple of things are striking just right off the bat. It's all about a certain interpretation of human history, but of course, it's from a conservative Christian point of view. Notice, for example, some of the dichotomies he draws. He offers up a simple either-or black-and-white choice. He says it's either Christ or chaos. You choose to live a life in some dystopian world of a collapse, a failed secular humanist project, or embrace his version of Christianity as he seeks to recruit followers to save the world. That dogma of secularism that he so confidently proclaims it's dead, it's dying, it's apparently a manifestation of humanity's rebellion against God. But of course, in his dominionist view that he kind of alludes to, if humanity were to embrace Christ and his rule, then apparently everything would just be great, wouldn't it? We're in a utopian society. But what happens, however, if you don't buy into any of his presuppositions that he so confidently spells out about the collapse of the old liberal secular way of life and the options that he offers some form of Christianity. What exactly it is, well, it's not so easy to tell from that two-minute window into Doug Wilson's world. But this is my question. What happens if you don't agree with his interpretation of history as well as that solution he so confidently lays out about the world and needing to be saved. And I mentioned the same thing in the previous episode, looking at Doug Wilson, the man, as well as his theological and biblical influences. Now, to me, it all comes down to the question, in Wilson's brand of Christianity, as well as evangelism or dominionism, is it actually working? Is he, along with Christ Church and all of his other elements that go to make up his sprawling religious empire, is it actually, as he says, saving the world? Admittedly, there are Christians from around the country. They've decided to upstake, sell everything, and move to Moscow, buy a house, maybe start up a business there too, all to be a part of whatever it is that Wilson's got going on there. Maybe, on the other hand, maybe it's a young person 
a Christian young man or woman, they want to attend New St. Andrews College, or they want to go to Greyfriars Hall, all with a view to planting a church or getting involved somehow in a way to promote Wilsonian theology. It could be a Christian family. Maybe they're moving to Idaho to be a part of the American Readout, which we talked about a little bit uh, in the last episode. And they just happen to pick Christ Church because one, it's one of the largest ones. It's also on the recommended churches list for American readout residents to attend. Maybe it's a pro-homeschooling family. I mean, who knows? But the question we have to come back to is this. Are Wilson's efforts to Christianize Moscow for Christ, which is actually stated right on their website, is it actually working? What I believe is going to become more and more clear as we go through this particular episode, focusing on the numerous scandals that have been attached to Wilson over the decades, as well as the controversies he's generated, There's a lot of Moscow residents who not only aren't happy about what he's doing there, they have resisted, they have fought his advances at every turn. Those many scandals that I'm going to talk about in this episode, they've only served, in my understanding of them anyway, to turn people off to his particular brand of patriarchal, dominionist, or theonomist Christianity. And remember, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to research. I'm trying to document all this. I've gotten some pushback on Twitter recently uh, from some who apparently support Wilson's work. And they've stated that I and other accounts like that at Examining Moscow account, which I mentioned before, which is dedicated to detailing Wilson's destructive activities, his toxic theologies and so forth. uh, We're just making it all up. They've said, you know, Doug Wilson, he's a good guy. He's a hardworking minister. I love Doug Wilson. You know, you're unfairly maligning him. You've got it all wrong. But no, the work has been done. We've got the receipts. We've got it all there. I'm grateful to all those, like I mentioned before, and I'll talk about in this episode, who have done so much work already. Those whose work I'm going to be drawing on for what I'm about to present to you. Now, we've already touched base in the last episode about some of the early scandals that were attached to Wilson. It goes all the way back to his initial coming to power in 1977 of what would become Christchurch in Moscow, but of course was originally named the CEF, the Community Evangelical Fellowship. In case you don't remember, I'll just give you a quick reminder of what went down. Back in 1993, so many years after he'd taken over the place, a number of charges were filed against Wilson by the then church elders. Now, this is just pure speculation, but I just spoke with his former professor at the University of Idaho, Dr. Nick Geyer. Of course, I was pronouncing his name wrong. I was saying Dr. Geer, but that's an episode that's coming up on the back end of all these things about Wilson. But uh, I spoke with Dr. Geyer, and I get the feeling that some of this these charges that were filed against Wilson back then, I think it has to do with some of his theological shifts. And Dr. Geyer said, you know, when he started out, he was kind of a more evangelical, free Baptist type of theology. But I think he started to move toward a more Calvinist, sort of a Christian reconstructionist, maybe a theonomist bent. Now, I don't know for sure. That's just a guess. But along with concerns over his theology, the elders also brought other charges against him, such as his mixing of church and non-church funds, about which we will hear more later in this episode. Now, how did Wilson respond to all these charges? Well, he alleged that all the elders had signed a letter that he had drafted attesting to his fitness for the pastoral role, according to scripture, of course, 
although most refused to sign that letter. However, when he was pressed on it, where's that letter? We want to see that letter. Wilson then fudged. He obfuscated the situation. He basically lied about it as far as I can see. And he and his closest associates, they continued to swear that all the elders had signed that letter. Unfortunately for Wilson, though, he was ultimately unable to present the goods because, of course, the elders had never signed the letter. Several of the elders then resigned in protest. But according to Nick Geyer, it took Wilson something like 127 months to sort of admit that there'd been an oversight. To this day, as far as I know, he's never produced that letter allegedly signed by those elders. But the end result was that with the dissenters now gone, Wilson proceeded to change the name of the church to Christ Church. We also talked about how over the years since then, Wilson has gone to gone on to cement his power base by using a, a series of tried and true tactics. I mean, this is straight out of the dictator's playbook, isn't it? Things like bullying, threats, outmaneuvering his opponents, nepotism and cronyism. And on that last one, we noted in the last episode how he's consistently appointed family members, both related by blood and by marriage, to high positions within his religious empire. He's also tapped New St. Andrews College graduates who serve as loyal lieutenants or sycophants or yes-men. We're going to see later that he's no stranger to politicking, outmaneuvering, and using deception to get his way. I also mentioned Wilson and his links to the American Redoubt movement. We talked about that in the last episode. What we have here is people who are moving into Moscow or that area for, among other reasons, connections to things like survivalism. We're talking doomsday preppers. These people are convinced that there's going to be a coming inevitable collapse and they want to be in an easily defendable area. But there's some connections there between these American redoubters and Christchurch. I mean, this is something else that's pissing off a lot of the locals. Because, of course, the one thing about Moscow is that they've described it as a, a dot of blue in a sea of red. It's a kind of a liberal town, but they don't want their city, their area to be portrayed as a bunch of doomsday preppers, you know, total Trump people, things like that. So one of the issues I touched on in the last episode was the man who allegedly kickstarted the American Redoubt movement, a guy called John Wesley Rawls. And on his survivalblog.com network, he's got a list of what he terms prepper-friendly churches that people who've just moved to the readout should connect with. Christchurch Moscow is on that list. Now, let's go on a little bit of a rabbit trail at this point. Since I'm talking about Rawls, I'm talking about the American readout. On the list of those recommended churches on Rawls' site, is another one that recently made the news. You may have seen this. It was up in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, back around September, October of this year. Now, it's worth noting how certain fundamentalist Christians or dominionist Christians, they're living in the readout, how they're attempting to enforce their own brand of morality on the public, and really how much of their theology, when you break it down, it aligns with a lot of what Wilson is preaching. Now, the pastor of this church up in Bonners Ferry He's a certain Warren Campbell. Now, apparently, he'd been running a church for years in nearby Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And along with certain members of his controversial Lordship Church in Bonners Ferry, they were part of a group of heavily armed locals. These people started appearing months and months ago at library board meetings. What were they doing? Well, they were loudly protesting about how the library should ban certain objectionable books. Well, who exactly is this Campbell? 
In a 2019 Bonner's Ferry Herald article, journalist Tanya Humans reports that, quote, new to Bonner's Ferry, and this would have been back in 2019, of course, they just moved into the area. She says, the Lordship Church is part of the American Redoubt, which boasts free church, supports homeschooling, patriotism, and the literal translation of biblical doctrine. Pastor Warren Campbell, who leads the Lordship Church, grew up in a prepper family lifestyle where self-reliance was important to them, end quote. And beyond that, note how at the time, a local resident described the church, which had already been called racist and homophobic, which is pretty no surprise there, and they'd left a string of controversies in their wake. Now listen to how this local described uh, Warren Campbell's theology. The local said, quote, he, that's Warren, feels homosexuals should be arrested. He doesn't believe slavery was nearly as ugly as our history claims it was, and he doesn't believe the Holocaust was nearly as devastating human rights-wise as far as the amount of people that passed, said Bonner's Ferry resident Craig Kelson. And Kelson went on to say, that is strange to me that everything that we have been taught, he's able to believe that it wasn't what it was. In my opinion, it, I don't think he has the same level of respect for those groups of people, end quote. Now note in that description, some of the ties to Wilson as well as Rush Dooney and Christian Reconstructionism, there's that toxic theology. We see the emphasis on homeschooling, the views on slavery promoted in his 1996 book, Southern Slavery as it was. Going back to the furor over the book ban issue up there in Bonner's Ferry, the list of controversial books that these people wanted to ban, what were they? Well, they included some 400 titles. They were all about things like gender, sexuality, same-sex marriage, critical race theory, or they featured LGBTQ, LGBTQ characters or plots and the like. Ironically, most of the books that these outraged fundamentalists were upset about weren't even stocked in the library. They weren't even on the shelves. But of course, that didn't stop the locals from arguing that pedophiles and other sexual deviants would be drawn to the library like a moth to a flame, or they could still access the books on their interlibrary loan system. According to a September 2022 CNN article by journalist Nick Watt, he went on to spell out the connections between that protest at the library and then the subsequent counter-protest by outraged locals when he states that although the protesters refused to speak with him, and of course they wouldn't, nonetheless, quote, they have made their feelings known at library board meetings. Things need to change, one man told the board at a meeting in late August. Otherwise, you bring curses down upon yourselves, period, from the most high. And at a meeting in July, Donna Caperso, a local realtor, said this, now quoting Caperso, My job is to protect our kids from sexual deviants who will be drawn to our library if inappropriate sexual material is on our library shelves. Caperso, he goes on to say, is an occasional contributor to a website called Readout News, which caters to a growing group here in northern Idaho of self-described God-fearing, liberty-loving patriots. And he goes on to conclude, he says, the American Readout is a term coined in 2011 by a Christian survivalist. The idea is that Christian patriots should retreat here from modern America to live their truth and defend themselves. The Redoubt is a large chunk of land encompassing all of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, as well as eastern slivers of Washington and Oregon. The boundaries are similar to those of the whites-only homeland 
envisioned by the Aryan nations, which was headquartered for years about 80 miles south of Bonner's Ferry. The redoubt movement does not espouse racial separation, end quote. And of course, we heard a little bit about that. Remember uh, John Wesley Rawls, he said, I don't make any distinctions about race. I only make distinctions on religious lines. So, you know, I'm not a racist. Going back to the story, head librarian of that Bonner's Ferry Library, 51-year-old Kimber Glidden, she ended up resigning due to the incredible stress that this situation placed her under. According to an August 2022 NBC News article by Tyler Kincaid, he reports that, quote, in Glidden's August 16th resignation announcement on Facebook, she stated that, now quoting Glidden, nothing in my background could have prepared me for the political atmosphere of extremism, militant Christian fundamentalism, intimidation tactics, and threatening behavior currently being employed by the community or in the community. They don't know what comes next. They just want to burn it down. And they're doing a good job, Glidden told NBC News, end quote. It's worth noting that alongside Wilson's Christchurch, that lordship church up there in Bonner's Ferry, it's also listed on Rawls Survival Blog as another recommended church for redoubters in that area to attend. Just saying. Just Let's just go down. We're on this rabbit trail. Let's keep going down this rabbit trail. And I didn't mention this in the last episode, but since we're on the subject of the American Redoubt, guys like ex-Washington State Representative Matt Shea are heavily involved in the American Redoubt movement. Now, incidentally, if you haven't been following his colorful career, that's one way to put it. After all the stuff he was involved in, Shea has now left politics behind. He started a church in Spokane, Washington called, wait for it, on Fire Ministries. Among other controversial beliefs, Shea advocates something called the Liberty State. Now, I guess this is where Central and Eastern Washington are going to split off. They're going to secede and they're going to form the, a 51st state called the Liberty State. He's also been known to have links to militia groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. And he advocates, just like Wilson, a form of theocracy. If you're interested in hearing more about this, about Matt Shea, I did an episode with Fred Clarkson about him about a year, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh, But then again, even though Wilson isn't necessarily a survivalist, he's not a doomsday prepper type of guy, I still think there's enough connections between himself, Christchurch, and the American Redoubt to be of major concern. I realize, of course, not every evangelical who moves to the American Redoubt area You're not going to fall into the camp of some kind of fundamentalist, gun-toting, survivalist, doomsday prepper type. But is this the sort of theocratic government that people like Wilson, as well as Campbell, envision? All these counter-protests in places like Bonner's Ferry and Moscow, you see that happening. They give the lie to Wilson's claim that his brand of Christianity, as he stated in that NBC interview I played for you on the last clip, or the last episode, they would be attractive to outsiders. I just don't believe it. It's not true. Anyway, enough of these American Redoubt rabbit trails. Let's get back now to the many scandals associated with Doug Wilson. I'm going to try to hit these in more or less chronological order. It's going to be a little bit out of order on some of this stuff, but there's some overlap here and there. Now, as I stated earlier, I'm I'm undoubtedly going to leave some stuff out. There's going to be some stuff that's developing that I won't have time to address before this episode drops. So here then is an overview of some, but not undoubtedly not all, I'm sure, of the scandals and controversies attached to 
Doug Wilson. We're going to start with his 1996 booklet or manuscript called Southern Slavery as it was. Let's take a brief look at this little booklet or a monograph that I mentioned a little bit before in the last episode. Doug Wilson co-wrote along with a certain Stephen Wilkins back in 1996. Now, I'm not going to go into massive detail here. I might end up doing a complete entire standalone episode on this. I've got enough uh, stuff that I've researched already on this. There's a whole thing about the theological war thesis, R.J. Rush Dooney's emphasis in this as well, guys like R.L. Dabney. There's a ton of stuff on this, and I'm going to be touching a little bit on this with David Johnson. So if you want me to do an episode on Southern slavery as it was, I can do that. Just let me know. Send me a message somewhere. But when it first came out, this book, Southern Slavery, as it was, I don't think it received a lot of notice outside of Wilson's circles. It was included in some of his homeschooling curriculum, so people in that sort of orbit may have known about it. But as we talked about already, it all came to light when Wilson held a conference on the book in 2004 at the University of Idaho. Now, uh, along with his co-author Wilkins, there was also another guy that was speaking George Grant. He's a known Christian Reconstructionist. Now, that history, in air quotes, that history conference ignited a firestorm of counter-protests and meetings, newspaper articles, journal articles by real, actual historians who were experts on the subject of the antebellum South, as well as the transatlantic slave trade. It was also the impetus for that article written by Mark Potok, who was then with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I had an interview with him about this years ago, that was one of the first pieces to shine a light on what Wilson had going on up there in Moscow, in addition to the controversial book and the conference. Shockingly, it seemed, Wilson and Wilkins' little book, that makes less than 40 pages long, it claimed a radically revisionist reading of the historical record, echoing the line of previous Southern Presbyterian slavery apologists from the 19th century, Wilson and Wilkins argued that not only was the existence of slaves in the pre-Civil War South generally a happy one, it almost seemed to praise the institution of slavery, since, in their view, it clearly benefited the slaves. Well, they'd never had it so good, it seemed. And beyond offering up a so-called biblical or Christian defense of slavery, they argued that the Civil War wasn't fought over the issue of slavery. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. It was instead the product of the unwarranted aggression on the part of the godless North. They waged essentially what was an illegal war against the godly South. Apparently that was the last bastion of a true Christian nation unfairly obliterated by those pagans from the North. I mean, talk about repeating the myth of the lost cause. Around the time of that conference in 2004, a pair of local historians took Wilson and Wilkins to task over their booklets. William L. Ramsey, then an associate professor of, of history at the University of Idaho, together with another history prof there, one Sean L. Quinlan, they wrote a scathing book review in 2004. And I love the title of this. It's called Southern Slavery as It Wasn't, Coming to Grips with Neo-Confederate Historical Misinformation. In that review of the controversial booklet by Wilson and Wilkins, the two historians point out that in their monograph, the defense of slavery actually hides a deeper reality, a defense of a literal reading of scripture that, in their view, 
was being undermined due to the current culture wars. In other words, this is Wilson and Wilkins' argument. If scripture condones slavery, which it unequivocally does, any, any denial of that reality leaves the rest of the Bible open to attacks by liberal critics. Thus, the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible is therefore put in a very precarious position, which Wilson and Wilkins cannot afford to allow. In their review, Ramsey and Quimlin stated that, quote, Wilson and Wilkins present a simple argument. In their eyes, slavery is morally justifiable because they can identify biblical references that sanction Christian servitude. As they see it, the problem with racial slavery in the South was that, now quoting from the book, it did not follow the biblical pattern at every point, and those few sad realities leave the whole institution open to criticism. For the most part, they claim, slavery was a harmonious institution, one characterized by racial, racial affection and patriarchal benevolence. Because these so-called facts are not known beyond, beyond neo-Confederate circles, Wilson and Wilkins lament that criticisms of Southern slavery can still, now being quoted from the book, put into adept use by those in rebellion against God. Sodomites, feminists, and civil rights propaganda can use the plain teaching of the Bible to undermine fundamentalist moral authority and thereby using scripture, quote, as a battering ram against the godly principles that are currently under attack, unquote. That's from the book. And the article concludes, why should the academic and legal community waste a moment thinking about this argument? It's not that Wilson and Wilkins are original or eloquent writers. At best, their work simply repeats many of the racist arguments advanced by pro-slavery activists in the 1840s and 1850s. Yet they have retooled those arguments and deployed them in the service of modern neo-Confederate and Christian reconstructionist causes, end quote. Remarking on the firestorm, both from the 2004 conference and their review, Ignited, one of the authors of that book review, historian William Ramsey, looked back on it. He wrote a reflection piece in 2005 in the History News Network Journal. Now, note how he describes not just the controversy Wilson and Wilkins' book and the conference generated, but how it ended up turning friend against friend, neighbor against neighbor. So much for that attractive form of Christianity that Wilson has deluded himself into believing that he's actually promoting up there in Moscow. In his reflection piece, Ramsey stated that, quote, such questions about the propriety of slave owning brought the small college town of Moscow, Idaho, home to the University of Idaho, to the brink of open hostility during the last year. Previously, friendly neighbors perfected outrageously inventive insults for one another and in some cases cut off communication altogether. Boycotts were threatened, Christmas lights pulled down, safes allegedly stolen, tires slashed, and soda cans thrown at, quote, nigger lover professors. At the center of the Fuhrer is a small 39-page booklet entitled Southern Slavery as it was, co-authored by local pastor Douglas Wilson and League of the South co-founder Steve Wilkins on the one hand, and an even shorter book review of it on the other hand by two University of Idaho professors entitled Southern Slavery as it wasn't. Professional historians respond to neo-Confederate misinformation. <clears throat> and Ramsey goes on, Wilson's and Wilkins' booklet, published by Wilson's Canon Press in Moscow, argues that Southern slavery was not only sanctioned by the Bible, but, thanks to the patriarchal kindness of their wise evangelical masters, 
a positive, happy, and pleasant experience for the majority of Southern blacks. Wilson and Wilkins are quite specific about the many benefits of slavery for African Americans, and they conclude that Southern slaves genuinely appreciated those benefits and supported the system that provided them. As such, they claimed that, now quoting from the book, slavery produced in the South a genuine affection between the races that we believe we can say has never existed in any nation before the war, or since the Civil War, that is. And Ramsey goes on, their praise of the institution is almost unbounded in places. There has never been, they argue, a multiracial society that has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world, page 24. They repeatedly deride the consensus view of slavery that has emerged over the past the last 50 years of ac academic scholarship as abolitionist propaganda and civil rights propaganda. Most of the modern problems confronting the United States, they feel, are the logical result of the theological heresies implicit in the abolitionist movement and its unfortunate victory over the South in the Civil War, end quote. And I'll just mention that one of the things that Wilson did to respond to Ramsey and Quinlan was he wrote to, I think, the president of the University of Idaho, and he demanded that both of them be sacked from their position. So he was trying to outmaneuver them. Around the time of that Wilson 2004 conference in Moscow, Wilson's former philosophy professor at the University of Idaho, Dr. Nick Geyer, weighed in on the controversy as well. Now, he condemned the book on multiple levels. Beyond its racist and hideously revisionist view of history, which as we've seen, all it does is parrot 19th century Southern pro-slavery apologists, Wilson and Wilkins chose as a primary source a debunked 1974 book about slavery on which to base their argument. Perhaps unsurprisingly, and I've mentioned this before, it also turned out that they had plagiarized large sections of it too. Geyer com commented that, quote, I read the essay, Southern Slavery as It Was, by Doug Wilson and Steve Wilkins, Canon Press, 1996, and it is historically inaccurate and theologically arrogant. Of the hundreds of books on slavery, the authors chose a single volume that fit their purposes, Engerman's and Fogel's Time on the Cross, which came out in 1974. And Geyer goes on, he says, The authors neglect to inform us that Herbert Gutman wrote a critique of this book entitled Slavery and the Numbers Game. A review in the American Historical Review states, now quoting the review, Gutman has destroyed the mathematical mystique of time on the cross, punctured its claims of novelty, accuracy, and understanding. And Geyer went on to say, the Moscow Pullman Daily News, November 8 and 9, covered Wilson and Wilkins' misuse of historical documents in some detail, and two University of Idaho historians have weighed in with a devastating critique, and that's, of course, the article that I just mentioned, Southern Slavery as It Wasn't. And Geyer goes on, he says, Wilson is going to have to do better than correct their spelling errors to prove himself an intellectually honest writer. In a Daily News column, Opinion, November 21st, Wilson had a chance to clear his name, but he was evasive as usual. And Geyer concludes, he says, members of Christ Church don't seem to realize the gravity of their Pastor Wilson's transgressions. Whenever Holocaust denier David Irving speak, speaks, 
Most people wince in emotional pain because of the outrageous claims that he makes. Similarly, when Wilson praises the slave-owning South as the greatest multiracial society in world history, all right-thinking people are horrified. This is not a matter of having a minority scholarly position on the Civil War. No, this is a gross misuse of historical data to give a perverted theological twist to the justice of the Confederate cause, end quote. In addition to plagiarizing large chunks of that 1974 book, Time on the Cross, which of course has already been debunked, Wilson and Wilkins also drew upon 19th century Southern slavery apologist and inveterate racist R.L. Dabney as a second main source. In another 2004 article lambasting the booklet, Geyer commented about their extensive and completely uncritical use of Dabney. Geyer says, quote, page 13, direct and praising support for R.L. Dabney, who supported slavery, was a racist and condemned race mixing, of which Christchurch is rightly proud. Dabney is quoted favorably without any qualification throughout the essay. Dabney admits that Southerners sinned, but owning other persons was not one of those sins. By the way, Steve Wilkins is an instructor at the Dabney Center for Theological Studies in Monroe, Louisiana, end quote. Speaking of which, while we're on the subject of Wilkins, Wilson's co-author for the book, who exactly is he? We've mentioned him before. By now, you've heard his name mentioned several times. He was the co-author of Southern Slavery as it was. Geyer concludes the article by pointing out that in addition to being attached to the Dabney Center, essentially keeping Dabney's work alive today, Wilkins was also one of the founders of the racist League of the South in Louisiana, which is it's been branded a neo-Confederate hate group, viewing the author's completely unsubstantiated claims that Southern slavery was the greatest and most harmonious society that ever existed in the history of the world. Geyer states incredulously, quote, why should one grieve that passing of the greatest multiracial culture in history? Why should we not work to bring back its glories? This is indeed the goal of Steve Wilkins' League of the South, which calls for the secession of 15 states to form the Confederate States of America, where its view of Christianity will reign supreme. The Southern Poverty Law Center calls this organization a white supremacist hate group, and Mark Potok, the editor of the center's intelligence report, will be giving us more details on the League of the South on February 6, 2004, at the University of Idaho. Christ Church's conference may not be about slavery, but many of us will be reminding of our community of the two main speakers, that's Wilson and Wilkins, support for it, end quote. And I just have to say here, this is a really interesting observation. Doesn't Wilkins's vision for the Confederate States of the South, doesn't that sound eerily like the same one, the same vision that people have for the American Redoubt or the Liberty State? Both sound to me like nothing less than theocratic kingdoms largely consisting of heavily armed white fundamentalist Christians. Neither one sounds like a place that I'd want to live, if you ask me. Now, on the subject of Southern slavery as it was, I, like I mentioned, I'm not going to go into too much more detail here because I may end up doing an entire episode on the subject of the booklet and the whole thing about the theological war thesis and Rush Dooney's involvement in it at some point later on. And like I said, we're going to touch on this in my episode with 
David Johnson. I think by now, however, the picture is clear that as far back as 1996, to say that Wilson's views on things like slavery, homosexuality, and feminism, they were already absolutely reprehensible. Of course, there's a lot more that needs to be said about this issue, but it's worth noting a few points here before we move on to look at some of the other scandals that Wilson's been attached with. So A, Wilson and Wilkins were found to be guilty of plagiarism and not for the first time. Wilson set a pattern then of blaming his co-author for the mistake and thus clearing his name. We're going to see this issue come up at least two more times. Then B, to my knowledge, Wilson has never retracted his claims that they made in the book. He's never apologized for their racist and historical revisionist nature. He's never walked back his association with the clearly racist Wilkins. And then C, thinking he would dodge some of the controversy, what he did was Wilson adopted a very clever strategy. Canon Press subsequently pulled the book from the shelves over this firestorm of controversy. What he did was he then ditched Wilkins as his co-author. Now, from what I can tell, I think he got some help from a certain historian, Dr. Eugene Genovese, or at the very least, Genovese provided some cover for him um, and more or less reissued the book in 2005. But he had a new title for it, and it's called Black and Tan, Essays and Excursions on Slavery, Culture War, and Scripture in America. Now, on Wilson's new book, Black and Tan, blogger Libby Ann comments that she'd already confronted some of the controversies surrounding the Southern Slavery as it was book. Following that takedown, she had a follow-up article. She then turned to deal with, quote, his 2005 book, Black and Tan, in which Wilson restated and defended the argument, his earlier argument. Wilson wrote Black and Tan after being forced to pull Southern Slavery as it was from publication because of serious plagiarism issues, which should tell you something about him as a scholar. And Libby Ann goes on, I've seen people suggest that Black and Tan was simply a slightly revised republishing of Southern slavery as it was, but this is misleading, she says. The book deals with the same themes, but it is also longer and deals less with the everyday aspects of slave life. And she concludes, Black and Tan is not a retreat from Southern slavery as it was. Throughout Black and Tan, Wilson speaks of his critics misunderstanding his words, actions, and intentions in Southern slavery as it was. He speaks of unsympathetic critics who go around, now quoting Wilson, snatching at words and highlighting inflammatory quotations. He does not apologize for or take back anything he wrote in Southern slavery as it was. In fact, or indeed, she says, in several respects, Wilson goes farther than he went in Southern slavery as it was, making comments and assertions that are blatantly racist, end quote. There's one last thing I'm going to say about the original book that should scare you to death. Before it became widely known as a racist, quote, biblical defense of slavery booklet with major plagiarism problems, among others, and finally pulled from the shelves for the controversy it generated, it was widely disseminated as part of Wilson homeschooling and Christian school curriculum that an entire generation of impressionable Christian children should be exposed to such vicious, revisionist, and frankly racist material in a Christian educational context is beyond shocking. But remember, as I mentioned in the last episode, Wilson has a massive reach into both the Christian day school, that is his so-called 
classical Christian school model and Christian homeschooling materials via his curriculum. And as Libby Ann points out, Wilson has not only never apologized or retracted any of his statements in the original book, he's only doubled down, he's attacked, he's vilified his attackers, and reissued a longer version of the book, but without substantially changing the original argument of Southern slavery as it was. If anything, she notes, black and tan is even more racist than the original. Let's go ahead and move on from this topic now. There's a lot more we could say, but remember, as I've said before, if enough of you want to hear an entire episode on Southern slavery as it was, the whole theological war thesis, as well as a so-called Christian or biblical defense of slavery, I've mentioned this now several times. There's an episode coming out on this subject with returning guest David Johnson. I've got enough material to do a complete standalone episode on just that topic. So let me know what your thoughts are. You can send me a DM on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can send me an email through my public MindShift podcast Facebook page. So there's a couple of ways you can get a hold of me to let me know your thoughts about doing an episode on that. But for now, let's move on to focus on some of the highly disturbing scandals within Wilson's immediate orbit, places like Christchurch, New St. Andrews College, and Greyfriars Hall. And we will do just that after we come back from a really short break. All right, it won't take too long. We'll get right back into these scandals associated with Doug Wilson in a few minutes. But I just wanted to mention what's happening here on the show. As I talked about, I've decided to split this one up. So the original plan was to come out with an episode with David Johnson that I just talked about talking about a Christian or biblical defense of slavery, which does focus on the topic I just talked about, which is the Southern slavery as it was the whole racist element. Is Doug Wilson a racist? And he's never apologized for it, never done anything to retract any of that. He's just doubled down and all the rest of it. So that's a really deep dive. But what we're going to do instead, as I talked about at the top of the show, is I'm going to devote one more episode before we get to the one with David Johnson. We're going to get into the toxic, the destructive, damaging theology, the teachings of Doug Wilson, some things like the federal vision theology that he's a part of, the general equity theonomy, and then I'm going to get into the so-called biblical patriarchy, the Christian patriarchy movement that Doug Wilson has been associated with. He's a major leading figure in that. And then in the, one of the last episodes, I've, I've got enough stuff to talk about the dude bros, the beard bros, or whatever you want to call them, the second and third generation people that Doug Wilson has sort of mentored, I guess you could say, or certainly influenced. And now they're going out and they're spreading his biblical patriarchy messages in very bizarre and disturbing places. And Kate West and I touched on this a little bit. We talked about Dr. Vody Bauckham. He's another associate of Wilson, the whole stay-at-home daughters thing. That's all part of the biblical patriarchy, the Christian patriarchy model. And Doug Wilson's a major mover and shaker in that. So in that episode, we're just going to look at the theology, the twisted teachings, and talk about some of the, the legacy of that, the damage that's been done. As Kate mentioned, if you've listened to that episode, you really need to go back and have a listen to that because it's kind of heartrending hearing her story about how she grew up in such a, a really an oppressive and a repressive home and other women that grew up in that system. A lot of them never had driver's licenses and things like that. They don't have any marketable skills because they were forced to stay at home and there was no point in going on to any higher education, no point in learning a skill or a trade, because, of course, they were just going to get married. They were waiting for 
the the perfect man to come along that their father would then hand them over to, at which point they would sort of transfer from underneath the umbrella of submission and authority of their father underneath the authority of their new husband. So that was the whole point. Everything they did was learning skills to be a good wife and mother, a stay-at-home mother. You go from a stay-at-home daughter to a stay-at-home mother. So really toxic stuff. So Doug Wilson's a big proponent of all these things. So we're going to get into that in that episode. I just wanted to mention, too, I talked about at the top of the show, the people who supported me on Patreon as a result of that first big monster episode I did on Doug Wilson. And um, I've named their names, so I want to say it here again. But thank you so much to those people who supported the show. And as I mentioned, the people who've supported me for years now, it's really helped me sort of, you know, do my work, continue on paying my expenses. So if you want to become a part of the Patreon Mindshift community, the link to that, as always, are in the show notes. You can get a hold of me there. You can get a hold of me, of course, as I mentioned on Twitter, as well as my public Facebook page. And then starting up again in January, we're going to be doing our Mindshift Zoom call. We do these every month. We took a break for the month of December. And in fact, I'm going to be taking a break from the show probably till middle or end of January. I'm getting ready to move house. And so I've got a lot of stuff going on. So I'm going to be taking a little bit of hiatus before that next episode on Doug Wilson comes out. But by about the end of January, we're going to start those uh, Mindshift Zoom calls again. And I've got Kate West. I think she's going to be coming back in in January. She's going to be our guest for our first call in 2023. So you can be a part of that by joining our Mindshift Podcast Patreon community as well as our closed Mindshift Podcast Facebook page. So some really cool stuff coming up. We're going to continue on with our research and our exposés of Doug Wilson as we continue on into January 2023 after the break. All right, let's get on now into going back into a deep dive of Doug Wilson's scandals. We're going to look at some really disturbing stuff coming up. So brace yourself. And uh, like I said, if you haven't poured yourself a good stiff drink, maybe it's time to start doing that now. Let's get back on into Doug Wilson, The Many Scandals. We're now going to move on from looking at Doug Wilson's book, Southern Slavery, as it was in the furor of controversy that it caused with the 2004 conference. We're now going to start looking at some of the actual scandals that have been attached to Doug Wilson and some of his various ministries, beginning with the so-called 1999 drug ring scandal. So what's the story on this one? Well, just three short years after he and Wilkins released their controversial and frankly racist book, Southern Slavery as it was, Wilson was enveloped in a major scandal and, as we'll see, a major cover-up too. According to the Truth About Moscow, Idaho site, author Ulysses lays out the story as it relates to a certain Randy Booth and his son, Aaron. A close associate of Aaron, in 2015, Booth would go on to become the chair of the CREC Review Committee charged with investigating how Wilson and Christchurch handled two high-profile sexual abuse cases, and there's a lot more coming on those two later. But at the time, Randy Booth was a pastor of a sister CRE church, which is what that denomination was originally called. Later, he would go on to co-write a book with Wilson that, just like Southern Slavery as it was, would be pulled by its publisher, Canon Press, for, you guessed it, plagiarism. And again, more on that later too. His son Aaron was a member of Wilson's church. 
Here's how it all went down according to Ulysses. Quote, in 1998, Mr. Booth's son, Aaron Booth, graduated from New St. Andrews College. By 1999, Aaron Booth found gainful employment teaching 7th grade Latin at Logos School in Moscow. He was 22 years old and a member of Christ Church Moscow. And I'm just going to break in. What in the hell is a 22-year-old kid who's just graduated from Wilson's New St. Andrews College doing teaching 7th grade Latin at a Logos school. Well, if you remember from what I talked about before in the last episode, Wilson's model of schools is this so-called classical Christian school model, and that's basically taken after the ancient medieval trivium. So you'd have young people learning things like Latin at a very young age, and that's part of this so-called classical schools model. So going back to Ulysses' account of what happened, we're going to pick up the story. Ulysses goes on to say, quote, Aaron Booth also trafficked hallucinogens, psilocybin mushrooms, and marijuana to Logos school students and NSA students. And he engaged in immorality with a 17-year-old Logos school student. Aaron Booth committed these crimes in Moscow, Idaho, while his father pastored a church in the CRE, now called the CREC, in Texarkana, Arkansas. And Ulysses concludes saying, Pastor Douglas Wilson of Christ Church Moscow notified the Kirk of some of these sins and writings, but he did not identify any of the criminal behavior, he did not report Aaron Booth to the legal authorities, and he covered up the sexual abuse, end quote. And as far as I can tell, there were a couple of other young men involved in the drug ring scandal also, including the son of the then dean of New St. Andrews College, one Dr. Roy Atwood, who would later become its president. At the time, the church's name was still Community Evangelical Fellowship and would, of course, be later changed to Christchurch. So how did he handle the incident? Well, in October of 1999... Doug Wilson wrote a lengthy letter to the church laying out how he had allegedly dealt so thoroughly with the situation. Note some of the careful wording that he uses, or maybe I should say obfuscation, as he lays out his case. In the congregational letter, Wilson stated that, quote, the second aspect of the situation concerns Aaron Booth, a member of our church who was deeply involved in this sin and other sins, and in very serious ways. The elders met with Aaron Booth this last Thursday and have suspended him from the Lord's Supper through the end of 1999. He has expressed repentance and is in the process of making restitution. But, Wilson goes on to say, because his sin involves so much deception, including self-deception, the purpose of the suspension is to bring him under the active discipline of the church while he seeks to put things right. His father, Randy Booth, a pastor in a sister church of the CRE, will likely take a leave of absence from the pastorate for a year. Please pray for the Booths and for Grace Covenant Church, end quote. And that's, of course, the church that Randy Booth was pastoring down there in Texarkana. What Ulysses argues is that when it came to representing the facts of the situation, Wilson overstated some, understated others, and some were completely omitted. 
hence the obfuscation and subsequent cover-up, and perhaps most importantly about the whole thing, his total failure to notify the authorities about these clearly illegal activities. Now, why is this? Well, because, as Ulysses alleges, Wilson was apparently more concerned about protecting his own, as well as the Kirk's, reputation, along with that of Logos and NSAC. As Wilson stated in the letter, Randy Booth announced that he would be, in fact, taking a one-year leave of absence from the pastorate to deal with the situation. In the end, however, Booth's leave of absence lasted only 10 months, and I found another site that claims it was only four months, so whichever it was, it certainly wasn't a year. And it wasn't just Randy Booth who got off lightly, and Aaron Booth as well, the then dean of NSAC, I mentioned before, Dr. Roy Atwood, whose son was also involved in the drug ring, wasn't disciplined by Wilson either, but rather was granted, just like Randy Booth, a leave of absence. According to a 2004 Presbyterian and Reformed News article, which details a whole numerous set of charges against Wilson, and this is just one of them, the article lays out the fact that Wilson not only did not contact the authorities, as Ulysses points out, his pattern in dealing with his cronies reveals that rather than disciplining or removing them from their position, he would instead grant them, as mentioned, a leave of absence. The newsletter details exactly what happened as follows, quote, the accused, that is Wilson's, failure to apply biblical and constitutional discipline in the 1999 NSA drug scandal established precedent for pseudo-disciplinary measures and laid the foundation for Dr. Roy Atwood's inactive status in 2002. This charge alludes to the matter which began a series of events eventually leading to the bringing of charges against Pastor Wilson. Dr. Atwood was an elder on the Christchurch session. He and two other men were not removed from ruling office and were instead given leaves of absence in conjunction with the 1999 drug scandal at New St. Andrews College. The article goes on, when the latest scandal with Dr. Atwood's son became manifest and he was not again formally disciplined, three men in the congregation ended up filing charges against both Dr. Atwood and eventually the session itself, end quote. The latest scandal refers to the gambling casino slash wet bar that Dr. Atwood's son had a hand in operating after the drug ring incident, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about in detail in just a few minutes. So how did Randy Booth's leave of absence go? Well, whether it was four months or 10 months, it was certainly short of the year that Wilson and he said it would be. After leaving his former church in Texarkana, he moved to take on a new pastoral gig at a church in Nagadocious, Texas. Interestingly, a short time later, he ushered his new church into, you guessed it, Wilson's CREC denomination. Talk about payback, eh? Ulysses comments that in the end, the whole ugly affair only goes to demonstrate that the CREC is not only a safe haven for rogue pastors, as far back as the late 1990s, Wilson was already busy engaging in cover-ups of both illegal activities as well as sexual assault cases within his church. But then again, as I've already shown, he's already lied to his elder board, so I guess this is nothing to see here, folks. Not only did he misrepresent the truth to his congregation, 
He failed to notify the authorities on both counts. And in the end, Aaron Booth got off scot-free. The worst thing that happened to him was, oh my God, heaven forbid, Wilson suspended him from the Lord's Supper, communion or Eucharist, in other words, through the end of the year. And he was also under some form of unspecified church discipline, which, of course, Wilson never spelled out in the letter to the congregation. And all this was so that Aaron could repent and make restitution with a view to being restored. I mean, you talk about some seriously tough justice there, eh? I'm sure Aaron really learned his lesson. That Presbyterian and Reformed News article has some similarly harsh words for Wilson and details just how hypocritical he can be when it comes to the differences between what he has written and his actual practice, his pastoral practice, within his ministry. The charge against Wilson in this case states that, quote, through the ministries of Canon Press and Credenda Agenda, that's Wilson's now defunct journal, it goes on to say the accused, Wilson, has played the Rabshaka to the modern evangelical church for at least a decade. Now, we just want to take an aside here. Who the hell was Rabshaka? If you don't know, that's a very obscure reference. Well, in the Old Testament, it was the title of the field officer for the army of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. His army was at the time besieging the city of Jerusalem. Now this Rabshakeh was taunting the Israelites, but the key thing is he was using their own language of Hebrew, and he questioned that the object of their faith, Yahweh, would protect them from apparently certain defeat. Now, how does all this apply to Wilson? Why this obscure reference? Well, this is just a guess on my part, but maybe I'm thinking that the Presbyterian newsletter uses this fairly obscure imagery from the Old Testament to point out that although Wilson speaks the language of evangelicals, in reality, he's either not a true believer or at least hypocritically misrepresents who he actually is. That's just my best guess. Anyway, let's get back to that article in the Presbyterian News uh, report. It goes on to say, quote, his position, that's Doug Wilson's, his position on elders' qualifications, ministers' standards, and church discipline is plain, well-documented, and clear. He has repeatedly called upon the church to repent for its woeful nature or woeful failure in the matter of ministerial standards, especially among officers' children. Therefore, in 1999, when Christchurch officers' children were discovered in the new St. Andrew's drug ring, the accused had a perfect opportunity to show the watching world that he was not a dissembler, but he did not. He slipped off point. The accused circumvented the Bible, the Constitution, and his own written record, and he granted leaves of absence in lieu of biblical discipline, end quote. Now, let's zoom out a little bit from this specific issue. Now, in my view, the very idea that a church could or should handle what's clearly a legal matter in-house going down the line of, you know, church discipline and restitution. To me, it merely reinforces the fact that for abusers and offenders, they know that there's a very good chance they won't spend a day or a minute behind bars. Why? Well, since everything's going to be handled in-house. In other words, it creates a culture that is rife for abuse. And we've seen this play out time and time and time again. We've seen it in the Southern Baptist Convention, the Catholic Church, the pedophile priests, the Jehovah's Witnesses organization with their so-called two-witness rule, and on and on. 
And, you know, while we're on that subject, there's one more thing that's worth pointing out. We heard Doug Wilson mention something I want to draw attention to. If you remember that YouTube clip I played in the last episode, whether or not he was a theonomist or a Christian reconstructionist, you remember that? Wilson made a really cryptic statement. He said, I want to distinguish between sins and crimes when it came to pastors or church leaders judging levels of wrongdoing on the part of members and then applying biblical law, or at least the principles of biblical law, in today's society. Or at the very least, his quote-unquote general equity theonomy model, it's really about the principle that lies behind that Old Testament law, since, of course, in his view, it's been set aside for modern-day Christians. Now, if we view this incident as a case study, that very handy little bifurcation that he draws between sins and crimes would conveniently allow Wilson, for example, to judge Aaron Booth's behavior as a sin, but not quite rising to the level of a crime. Therefore, the route to restitution in that case would involve things like church discipline, with a view to ultimately being restored back to his former position. There's no need to call the police, is there? Now, while he may not say it outright, I suspect that in both the Booth case and some of the others that we'll hear about later, they were all mainly judged as sins that didn't necessarily arise to the level of an actual crime, or at least not in Wilson's view anyway. Hence, no reason to involve the authorities. We can handle it all in-house. On a side note, by the way, in that article, the basic argument that Ulysses lays out is that Aaron Booth's crimes, both in running a drug ring as well as his alleged sexual abuse, would therefore disqualify his father, Randy, from pastoral ministry, according to Christ Church's own biblical guidelines. This is the standard protocol in Wilson's worldview for a church leader. According to the many charges later filed against Wilson by the Presbyterian Church denomination, in their view too, this should have included Dr. Roy Atwood as well. Whether or not this is true, that's really beyond my concern. I mean, to me, that's an in-house type of discussion. That's for evangelicals. I think it really comes down to the issue of hermeneutics. In other words, how one interprets and then applies the passage in question referring to biblical qualifications for an elder or church leader. As I see it, the basic assumption is that if a church leader isn't managing his own family well, and there are serious issues at home, he's got no business being in charge of a church. And as I mentioned, the numerous charges filed against Wilson by the Presbyterian Church denomination in 2004 include a mention of Dr. Roy Atwood too. As I mentioned earlier, the argument is that both Roy Atwood and Randy Booth should have been disciplined because their children were basically out of control too. But of course, Wilson obfuscated, he lied, and he covered it all up. I'll give you an example from my own church life of, I think, how an incident like this might play out and cause someone to step down from a ministry position. I can vividly remember my father, when I was about nine or ten years old, standing up in front, he proclaimed to our whole Church of Christ congregation that he was, with immediate effect, standing down as a church elder. Now, why was he doing this? Well, my older sister, Valerie, had become pregnant at the age of 17. And we did a whole podcast episode on this several years ago. Valerie tells her story of when all this went down. The reason my father cited for stepping down was basically a straight reading of the biblical text. 
This is the guidelines for elders and pastors, church leaders. He said, well, since I don't have my own house in order due to my pregnant teenage daughter, she's clearly in rebellion. She's clearly in sin. He had no business shepherding the flock of God, as the Apostle Paul puts it. And just for another little rabbit trail, while I'm on the subject, it's worth noting that our parents raised us kids according to the Bill Gothard. At the time, it was called IBYC, Institutes in Basic Youth Conflict. They raised us according to Gothard's principles. Of course, now it's called the IBLP, Institutes in Basic Life Principles. Aside from my dad stepping down from his ministry position, I can also vividly recall my mother, when all this was going down, explaining to me that the reason Valerie had become pregnant and had to be kicked out to a foster home two hours away, she had to go to high school, she had to finish it herself on her own, and then she was later forced to give up her baby daughter for adoption. Why did all that happen? Well, my mom said it was because she'd removed herself from out from underneath her parents' umbrella of protection. If you remember the Bill Gothard model, according to his teaching anyway, she was also out from underneath God's umbrella of protection due to her rebelliousness, her immorality, and her sin. According to this line of reasoning, then, she was fair game for the attacks of Satan. And really, there was nothing they, or more importantly, God or the church, could do to protect her. So the resulting pregnancy out of wedlock, the shame of the whole thing, my dad having to resign as an elder of the church and whatever bad things happened to Valerie. Well, that was all her fault. Now, I mention this here only because I think there's a lot of parallels to this theology and what Doug Wilson teaches. Though he may not use the term umbrella of protection as Bill Gothard did, but in Wilson's theology, and we're going to look at this a bit more when we look at this issue of biblical patriarchy, in his view, any woman who is out from under the protection of either her father or her husband is fair game, according to Wilson. So in his logic, if she gets raped because she's put herself in that position, the way he sees it is this. It was her fault and wasn't the fault of the man who raped her. This is but one of the toxic legacies of a patriarchal system like that of Wilson's and Gothard had a similar logic. He would argue that any woman who dressed immodestly or provocatively and therefore caused a man to lust and sin and ultimately attack her in some form of sexual abuse or assault, it's her fault. Because, of course, in his view, all men are nothing but ravening, out-of-control beasts who can't stop themselves from sexually assaulting a woman when she dresses provocatively. So back on the issue of the drug ring, as I mentioned earlier, it's worth noting that Randy Booth was later involved in investigating how Wilson and Christchurch handled both the Stephen Sittler and Jamin White situations that I'm going to talk a little bit more about in a minute. This inevitably leads to a question of whether or not he owes Wilson his pastoral position, and this was his way of repaying the debt. That's Ulysses' basic argument, but on this level, it may be a little more than speculation. On this, though, Rod Dreher, in a 2015 American conservative article, comments that Booth basically has zero credibility left, since, of course, the book he co-wrote with Wilson was pulled with Can by Canon Press after Rachel Green Miller caught numerous instances of plagiarism. Dreher states that, quote, Randy Booth, the co-author of A Justice Primer, is the man Wilson appointed to investigate the way he and his church handled accusations of sexual abuse within the church. Credibility? None left. 
not a shred of it if there ever was, end quote. Let's move on now from the drug ring to talk about the 2001 gambling ring incident or scandal. So I've cobbled this together from a couple different places. First of all, from the Vision 2020 site, it appears that this is how the story went down. In December of 2001, just a couple of years after the drug ring scandal was discovered and, of course, subsequently hushed up by Wilson, another one threatened to blow up Wilson's empire. Dr. Roy Atwood's 21-year-old son, Ethan, was caught running an illegal blackjack casino slash wet bar out of his garage, or was potentially his father's garage, on Morton Street in Moscow. Two sons of existing church elders, along with other young men, were also involved in it. At the time, Dr. Atwood was a teaching elder at Christ Church and the dean of New St. Andrews College. And of course, as I mentioned, he would later go on to become its president. On the Heidelblog.com page, there's a really helpful article that breaks down the entire scandal step by step. Carrying on the story, it states that, quote, the Morton Street Casino was a well-financed, well-equipped gaming operation designed to earn money for the house. The age of the players ranged from their late teens to early 20s. There was a $100 limit per hand. Money was credited by the house. Books were kept. And at the end of each month, the players settled their accounts. The Morton Street Casino violated both state and federal laws. Moreover, it was carefully concealed. Dr. Atwood's son charged one player, now quoting Ethan Atwood, he says, don't tell anybody about this, not even your parents, especially your parents, not even if it was your mother on her deathbed, end quote. So how did this enterprise actually function? Well, the Heidelblog article continues, quote, in October 2001, the first month of high-stakes gambling, the Morton Street Casino house lost about $1,000, and the house faithfully paid its debt. In November, however, the tide turned. Casino management served free liquor to the players, and as inhibitions lowered, wagers increased. By the end of the month, the house won about $4,500. In December 2001, when the casino was discovered, Douglas Wilson and the Christchurch session canceled all debts and instructed the players to get back to the status quo ante, end quote. Now, just three weeks after the casino operation was uncovered, Dr. Roy Atwood tendered his resignation, citing both biblical precedent and church constitutional procedure, stating that he had to step down because his son was in high rebellion. This is the same exact thing that my father did. But in January 2002, the church session presented Atwood's letter to what is termed the HOH, Head of Households at Christ Church, which is apparently the correct procedure there. However, in the next month's meeting, Doug Wilson contravened procedure, and he instructed the HOH, the head of household, to return or reject, basically, Atwood's resignation letter. So thus, he nullified his resignation, because as he stated at the time, Atwood's son apparently had permission to run the casino. But of course, this was never fully explained to the church. Apparently, yet again, it was more obfuscation on Wilson's part he was intending to portray it as Ethan merely having permission to visit a legal gambling house. Of course, this is a far cry from having permission to manage and run 
an illegal casino and wet bar out of some guy's garage. And just like that, the Morton Street Casino scandal was born. At that February HOH meeting, Doug Wilson's argument kind of went like this. He said, well, there's a different biblical standard for removing an elder than ordaining one in the first place. He says there's a difference between passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, differences between an existing elder as opposed to an elder candidate, you see? Aha. The Heidelblog article goes on to point that point out that, quote, this was a new position for Wilson. It was a complete contradiction of his 10-year written record, and it was biblically untenable. Doug Wilson twisted scripture, end quote. For his part, therefore, on Wilson's urging at his direction, Atwood was not disciplined, not fired or removed from his positions either at Christchurch or New St. Andrews College. And as we've already seen, this fits the pattern already established by Wilson to grant leaves of absences rather than actual discipline, which is in line with church standards that are on paper. The article goes on to state that, quote, in 1999, less than three years before the casino scandal, Dr. Atwood's son was involved in the NSA drug ring. And instead of disciplining Dr. Atwood, Wilson gave him a six-month leave of absence. Wilson referred to the LOA as a wisdom call. In other words, his wisdom overrode scripture. And who wants to admit that their wisdom isn't so wise? But wisdom is justified by all her children, end quote. But beyond merely not disciplining or firing Atwood, there's another disturbing aspect to the scandal, too, since he neither disciplined Atwood or his son, Wilson was compromised in that he could not also discipline the casino player. So when that casino closed, there was about $1,000 outstanding debt to the house. This is the man who had bankrolled the operation. Making things worse, now the house had leverage on him. So what was he to do? The apparent solution presented itself when Wilson and the Christchurch elders dipped into church funds, the general funds, to pay off all outstanding casino debts to the man who had apparently bankrolled the entire operation and who, at the time it was discovered and closed down, was still owed around $1,000. Picking up the story in that 2004 Presbyterian News and Report, they indicate that, quote, in order to put things back to the way they were before the gambling started, the elders at Christchurch decided to give the owner $1,000 in order to cover what he was owed. One of the charges against Doug Wilson says, now quoting one of the charges, they say, the accused, that is Doug Wilson, committed a crime against the Lord Jesus Christ when on May 30th, 2002, he stole money from God to pay off illegal gambling debts. The cited letter confirms that tithed funds from the church were directed to one Brett because he was the house in the Morton Street Casino. When young men in the church pastored by the accused incurred gambling debts, the accused determined to illegally, immorally, and unethically dip into Internal Revenue Code Section 501c3 designated funds and pay off the private wasteful gaming debts of the young men, end quote. The Heidelblog article spells it out really clearly. It says, quote, 
Therefore, on May 30th, 2002, Douglas Wilson and the session took $1,000 from the Christchurch General Fund and paid it to the Morton Street Casino House. Douglas Wilson and the session stole $1,000 from the tithes and offerings to pay off felonious gambling debts. Wilson and the session robbed the Lord's Treasury. And Dr. Roy Atwood was a ruling-slash-voting-slash-disciplining member of the Christ Church session when the theft occurs. As scripture says, money answers everything, and it's always easier to play with someone else's chips. But the $1,000 payoff was not revealed to the members of Christ Church. It was covered up, end quote. Essentially then, to summarize, Wilson stole money from Christ Church's general fund, which is a nonprofit entity, and he used it to pay off private gambling debts incurred by some of the members of his church. This is not only financial malfeasance, private use of such funds is illegal under IRS laws, which constitutes tax fraud. That Presbyterian News article puts it clearly as listed in yet another of their accusations against Wilson. Quote, a further charge argues that when the session doled out charitable funds to pay off felonious wasteful gaming debts, funds which they knew God's people had given for the work of the ministry, they recklessly exposed the flock of God to financial loss by endangering the tax-exempt status of the church, end quote. In line with his past actions, Wilson never informed the Christchurch members of the magnitude of what actually happened at the Morton Street Casino. Just like he'd done a few years earlier in the case of Aaron Booth and the drug ring, Wilson instead represented Ethan Atwood to the church as being repentant of his sins and on the road to restitution, despite the fact that, ironically, a mere few days after his father, Dr. Roy Atwood, withdrew his resignation letter, young Ethan got publicly drunk at a party. Some real repentance there, isn't it? There's yet another disturbing twist to that Morton Street casino scandal, how Wilson responded on the back end. After thinking that he'd successfully covered the whole thing up, paid off any outstanding debts, of course, using church funds, and saved both himself and Dr. Atwood from disgrace. The Heidelblog article goes on to point out that, quote, in July 2001, I think they mean 2002, but anyway, they say three members in good standing brought charges against Dr. Atwood for failure to rule his house well. These men did not know about the payoff, but they did know that men with unfaithful children are prohibited from serving as elders. Douglas Wilson responded by threatening the men who brought the charges. He said, now quoting Wilson, there's going to be some shooting in the bushes. People are going to get splattered. He said, families are going to be destroyed. He also said, lives are going to be undone and ruined. He went on to say, there's going to be big time lawsuits. There's going to be firestorms in your households, etc. But rather than stand down, the men charged the session to the CRE. Another notable quote that Wilson said was something like, when I swing, people get shattered. So this is the kind of thing that Wilson did. He started threatening people who were sort of blowing the whistle. The Presbyterian News and Report comments on this that, quote, one of the charges regarding pastoral tyranny argues, now reading the charge, when the accused, that is Wilson, expressly forbade a member in good standing from speaking to anyone in the church about the Atwood 
inactive status decision, that's Atwood's leave of absence, he trespassed his ordained authority and entered the realm of authoritarianism. Scripture forbids shepherds from lording as much as it requires their households to be in order, end quote. In July of 2002, the CRE denomination launched an investigation against Wilson, revealing a profound disconnect between Wilson the man and Wilson the public preacher, the differences between what he has written and said versus what he actually does. The Heidelblog article notes that as a result of the investigation, it was revealed that, quote, in 1989, Wilson borrowed money from CEF, which is now Christchurch, to pay his taxes. In 1992, while the loan was still outstanding, the elders checked the books and discovered that Wilson had a regular habit of borrowing money from the church. These personal loans were not made with the elders' knowledge. They were self-designated. He simply took the money for his own personal business. When confronted by an elder, the article goes on to say, Wilson does not confess his sin. He merely described it as inappropriate, and his primary concern was about getting caught, not the impropriety. In 1993, the CEF session disciplined Wilson because he abandoned the doctrinal standards of the church, but Doug did not submit to his elders. He rebelled against their lawfully constituted authority. He politicked, garnered support, and undermined the session. Half of the session resigned shortly thereafter, end quote. And once again, as we've seen before, Wilson's very adept at garnering support. He's running people out of their positions. He's good at politicking those people who oppose him or question his authority and therefore maintaining his power base. I believe now we're starting to slide into the realm of potentially the destructive cult leader. In fact, the Presbyterian News and Report article says this very thing. They go on to note that, quote, tyrannical abuse of power like this was the trademark of Jonestown and the Branch Davidians. It is not acceptable behavior for evangelical ministers of the gospel. Ministers may not bind adherents beyond the limits of Scripture, and Scripture encourages rather than suppresses communication between sheep and shepherds, end quote. A couple more things to note before we move on to yet the next scandal. Whatever happened to Dr. Roy Atwood and then Randy Booth? On the Truth About Moscow, Idaho site, Ulysses noted that back in 2014, Dr. Atwood, the then president of NSAC, suddenly vanished. Just like that, he was let go from all of his ministry positions. It happened like this. Dr. Atwood, quote, disappeared in the middle of the school year, in the middle of a semester, in the middle of a Monday morning, three weeks before Christmas, without any job prospects, he was gone. After 20-plus years of Kool-Aid drinking loyalty to all things Douglas Wilson, he had to start anew in his 60s, and no recommendation from the new St. Andrews College on his resume, not that it would do any good, end quote. According to the NSC, NSAC website, they glossed the whole thing over. They just merely stated that Dr. Atwood's planned retirement had been merely moved up a bit, as in right in the middle of a college term, just shortly before the Christmas break. But apparently, resign he did at the age of 62 without any prospects for another gig. So what happened? He picked up a job at Morthland College for a year in 2015, 
Then he landed at Nehemiah Gateway University in Albania for another year. Perhaps unsurprisingly, as we've talked about this issue of nepotism, guess who Dr. Atwood's successor was? Doug Wilson's son-in-law, Ben Markle. According to Ulysses, we'll never know what Dr. Atwood's sin was that saw him get bum-rushed out the door so suddenly and without any real explanation, but it's clear once again that if you do anything to offend Wilson, you can be dispensed with quickly and made an example of to others. And as far as Pastor Randy Booth, I may have mentioned this already after they co-wrote that book that was pulled for plagiarism, he would later be tapped to lead the, quote, investigation into the way Wilson and Christchurch handled the next two scandals we're going to cover, two highly disturbing sexual abuse cases. And again, this is just speculation, but one has to wonder if Booth's subsequent, eh, nothing to see here, folks, that judgment in the end, had nothing to do with the fact that maybe he owed Wilson his pastoral position following his son's involvement and the cover-up of the NSAC drug ring scandal. Honor among thieves, as the saying goes, but as we may have mentioned already, well, at least from Doug Wilson's point of view anyway, the CREC denomination that he helped to establish years ago, what it does is it helps provide him with a veneer of accountability, but in reality, he stacked it with sycophants and loyalists. So if they clear his name regarding any scandal, he can say, with a straight face, well, the CREC approved it. The CREC investigated it and found nothing wrong. So in reality, the CREC provides a veneer of respectability and accountability. But when you actually part the curtains, as it were, there's really nothing there. So now we're going to move on to the final part of this episode. We're going to look at some really highly disturbing sexual abuse scandals that occurred within Doug Wilson's orbit and how he and his Christchurch cronies handled them. We're now going to look at not just one, but two cases of sexual abuse that occurred within some of Doug Wilson's ministry sprawling empire. The first one is we're going to look at the case of a certain Stephen Sittler. This is another whole hugely disturbing area that needs to be referenced here. As I understand it, this is how the basic storyline went down as follows. Stephen Sittler moved to Moscow in about 2003 to attend New St. Andrews College. He also started attending Wilson's Christchurch. Apparently at the time, no one at either organization knew that Sittler was already a serial prolific pedophile. He'd already left behind a string of victims, both boys and girls, ages 2 through 12, in at least three different states. According to blogger Julie Ann on her spiritual sounding board, she says, quote, In March of 2005, the parents of one victimized child notified Doug Wilson, who advised them to retain the Christchurch's attorney to accompany them as they notified legal authorities of the crime. This marks the beginning of Sittler's legal issues. She goes on, about this time, Doug Wilson began counseling with Stephen Sittler. To make a long, very long story short, she says, Sittler was convicted, served time, and took a plea deal, and will have supervised parole for the rest of his life, end quote. So on the face of it, it sounds like, it looks like Wilson did the right thing at the time, by which I mean he notified the authorities that ended up in Sittler going to prison, doing his time, and becoming a registered sex offender. Now, that should have been the end of it. Oh, no. 
but the story gets immediately shockingly worse. And of course, somehow you knew it had to. Doug Wilson actually wrote a letter to the judge presiding over the case, asking for leniency for Settler. Wilson concluded his letter to the judge by stating that in light of the counseling and mentoring that he'd performed with Settler, that he should be given a lighter sentence. And here's what Wilson wrote. He said, quote, I'm grateful Stephen was caught, and I'm grateful he has been brought to account for these actions so early in his life. At the same time, I would urge that the civil penalties applied would be measured and limited. I have good hope that Steve has genuinely repented and that he will continue to deal with this to become a productive and contributing member of society, end quote. According to Rod Dreher, however, there's even more to the story at the beginning than meets the eye. Wilson allegedly engaged in deception with the authorities on some level, knowing there was much more to the story. Dreher notes that, quote, Sittler was convicted of a sex crime against a minor, but according to Wilson, confessed to many more pedophilic instances for which he was not tried. He was sentenced to life in prison, but paroled on the condition that he never be around minors without a chaperone present. He was a member of Wilson's church, and other members of the church set him up with a young woman from within the community, end quote. Wait a minute, what? Yes, you are hearing that correctly. After Sittler was released from prison, undoubtedly due in some part to Wilson asking the judge for a more lenient sentence, it looks as if Wilson welcomed him back into the fold with open arms. At some point, Stephen Sittler started courting a young woman from Christchurch. How the hell did that happen? It appears that just a few years after Sittler's release from prison, a young woman named Katie Travis moved from Nevada to Moscow to attend New St. Andrews College. She lived with a certain Ed Irison and his family, who was an elder at Christchurch and also the librarian at NSAC. In line with Wilson's patriarchal teachings and courtship model of marriage, Travis asked Iverson, whom she respected as a father figure, to find her a suitably godly man to marry. And just as an aside, Ulysses on the Truth About Moscow, Idaho site points out that a great many NSAC and Greyfriars Hall students have their residency in the homes of Christchurch members, which is strange at the best of times. So going on, Iverson knew of the perfect man, Stephen Sittler, now free after doing his time, serving his jail sentence, and apparently he was saying all the right things about how then he was free from his attraction to children. I mean, God only knows what his story was, but there's one thing that I do know about how pedophiles operate. They will tell you anything that they think you want to hear in order to win your trust. I have no doubt Sittler conned the Iverson family and potentially countless others into Christchurch into believing he was no longer a pedophile, no longer a threat to children. So in 2010, Iverson and his wife invited Sittler to their house for dinner and to meet Katie with the express purpose of courting her for a future marriage. It's also presumed that Wilson knew about the courtship and also approved of it. Thus, it came to pass that in 2011, just one short year later, unbelievably, Doug Wilson presided over the marriage of Settler and Travis, all the while knowing 
that Sittler was a convicted sex offender and serial abuser of children. Knowing his backstory and criminal convictions for child abuse, the state of Idaho required, as we heard Dreher say, that Sittler must have a chaperone once the couple started having children, believing rightly that they would not be safe around him. But the judge in the case weighed in with a shocking decision to allow the marriage between Sittler and Travis, and he stated, quote, So here we have a young man who has committed heinous crimes and wants to engage in what I think everyone in the room would consider to be a pro-social relationship. So I'm going to let the wedding proceed. If and when Mr. Sittler and Miss Travis have children, and we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, or if we need to address it sooner than that, I'm happy to address it sooner than that. But I, I think it's a reasonable restriction that he not reside with his wife and child in the future if, in fact, they have children, end quote. Yeah, you heard that right. Both the judge and Wilson knowingly approved of this union, taking the line that, you know what, if the couple ever did have children, eh, Sittler is going to have to be removed from his own house. That seems, on the face of it, an incredibly irresponsible ruling, doesn't it? Wilson, for his part, couldn't come up with any biblical reason not to approve of the marriage, or in other words, he couldn't come up with a single Bible verse to oppose it. Essentially, as it seems, Wilson's twisted logic is that marriage would be good therapy for a pedophile. And as Dreher points out, no responsible minister of the gospel would or should think that way. For his part, Dreher labels it as nothing less than pastoral malpractice on the part of Wilson. Yes, Steve Wilson should have anticipated that if Sittler and Travis had children, Sittler would make every uh, effort to abuse them. This is not rocket science here. The bottom line is that Wilson knowingly participated in creating a situation in which the children would not be safe in their own home with their pedophile father. Unfortunately, upon the birth of their first child, both Katie and her grandmother were removed as chaperones. In a 2017 on the Truth About Moscow, Idaho site, the author Ulysses sums up the following details about this case. Quote, Ed Iverson, an elder from Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and then head librarian of New St. Andrews College, introduced Stephen Sittler to an NSA student hoping that they would marry. Pastor Douglas Wilson of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, could not find one verse in the Bible to prevent him from presiding over the marriage of Stephen Sittler to a graduate of New St. Andrews College. So he wed the two, knowing that they planned to have children. Finally, Ulysses says, five years later, Katie Sittler conceived and bore a child by her pedophiliac husband, whom P&P allowed to stay in the home without informing anyone from the court. Neither Judge Stegner nor Leta County Prosecutor Bill Thompson knew Mr. Sittler resided under the same roof as his child, which violated the terms of Mr. Sittler's parole. Douglas Wilson, the church's pastor, didn't bother to inform the authorities either, end quote. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given his history, just a few months after his son was born, Sittler began failing polygraph tests, questioning whether or not he had engaged in sexual contact with his son and was subsequently ordered off the property, but has since, as far as I can tell, with the backing of Wilson, he's been allowed to move back in. And what about Doug Wilson? Any regrets, any apologies for the damage that he was a part of? For his part, 
Wilson did not retract, but instead defended his every action in the case. He doubled down. He stated, quote, and just so to be really clear about this, I conducted the wedding and would do so again next week. So this is not one of those things where I wish I hadn't done that. It would have been much more convenient had this not happened, but I don't think we were put here for convenience. I think we're this has been a big trouble, but I would do it again, end quote. And listen, finally, before we move on to the next scandal of this clip of Doug Wilson on that NBC interview I played for you, he's still standing up for Sittler as of 2022. And listen to how he's been so unfairly maligned for it. Like many other churches, Wilson's deals with accusations of sex abuse, including a deacon this summer pleading guilty to a federal charge of child pornography, and Wilson marrying a released child molester to a church member. The thing that upsets people is not the child molestation offense, because there are 20, 30 sex offenders in Moscow, and everybody knows the name of one of them because of where he goes to church. Right. The ones who don't go to church, they're all okay. They stay out of the newspapers. But the one who is repentant and wants to live right and is, you know, uh, straightening, straightened out, we're going to go after him because this is, um, uh, because they're, the target is actually me. Wilson, if anything, seems energized by the criticism and attention. Now, I don't want to get too much into that, but there it is. There you have it. Wilson says a bunch of stuff in that little clip that's just unbelievably horrifying, isn't it? No one's upset with the fact that Stephen Sittler was a pedophile. No. And all the pedophiles in Moscow, they're fine. It's all about me. It's coming after me. Notice how he turns the whole situation and says, they're attacking me unfairly, maligning me because I did this. In fact, Stephen Sittler, he straightened out. We've straightened his life out. But of course, that's not true. He's been sexually abusing his own son, as far as I can tell, or at least admitted to it. So this is absolutely untrue. And you can see the sophistry, the twisting, the obfuscation, and that sort of victimhood martyr complex that Doug Wilson has. And at no point does he offer up any sort of apology or any sort of retraction that he may have made a mistake or done something shockingly horrible. No, he says... The only reason this even is an issue is because they're coming after me. I mean, that is just an absolutely incredibly twisted sort of a defense, I guess you could say, of his actions. Pretty horrifying, isn't it? Let's move on now and take a look at the second issue, the sexual abuse case that came to light in Doug Wilson's Christchurch organization, Doug Wilson and the Jamin White situation. So the Stephen Settler issue turns out wasn't the only time Wilson had to deal with a sexual assault case in his church. Around about the same time as the Settler allegations were coming to light, sometime in 2005, it also became known that 24-year-old Jamin White, who at the time was a Greyfriars Hall seminary student, he'd been sexually abusing 14-year-old Natalie Greenfield. As far as I can tell, the abuse went on for about approximately 18 months. Natalie was a teenager at the time. She was the daughter of one Gary and then Patricia Greenfield, in whose home White boarded while he was a student at Greyfriars Hall. When she turned 18, Natalie informed her parents of the abuse at the hands of White. White was charged and spent a short amount of time 
in prison. But again, Wilson, just like he'd done with Sittler, stood up for the offender. And he wrote a letter to a certain Officer Green, who was the investigating officer in the case, on White's behalf. Whose fault was the abuse? Was it that of White? No, not in Wilson's twisted logic. Guess who he blamed? He blamed Natalie's parents for being foolish in this case of somehow approving the relationship between White and Greenfield as of August 2005. On social media platforms such as Twitter, just like he'd done with the Settler case before, Wilson refused to apologize or retract anything. He continued to defend White. He blamed Natalie's parents and he minimized White's actions toward Greenfield. You know, he said it's not being as severe or criminally liable as statutory rape or sexual abuse of a minor. Even the judge presiding over the case dismissed the seriousness of the situation. He, too, blamed Natalie's parents for, quote, putting White and her together for the purposes of courtship, end quote, even though Natalie was only 13 or 14 years old at the time. In his letter to Officer Green, for example, Wilson concludes it by arguing that, quote, the Greenfields, who had no idea of the sexual behavior occurring between Jam Jamin and Natalie, acknowledged their sin and folly in helping to set the situation up. I do not believe that this situation in any way paints Jamin as a sexual predator. In all my years as a pastor, I don't believe that I have ever seen such a level of parental foolishness as what the Greenfields did in this, end quote. In that Vice article I quoted from in the last episode, Sarah Stanker summarizes what happens. She said, quote, Former church member Natalie Greenfield was 14 when Gray Friars Hall student Jamin White, who was in his mid-20s, started sexually abusing her. In 2005, when Greenfield reported the abuse to police, Wilson asked the investigating officer to give leniency to White. Wilson cast their sexual interactions as the result of a parent-arranged courtship, something Greenfield maintains is untrue. But according to emails gathered in an extensive analysis of Wilson by researcher Rachel Shubin, the judge seemed to accept Wilson's narrative and rejected a more stringent plea agreement under charges of sexual abuse of a child. And she concludes, she says, after White's conviction on a lesser charge of injury to a child, Christchurch plant Trinity Reformed emailed congregants thanking those praying for White. Following his release, Trinity funded $3,000 towards sending White on a Haitian mission trip. In 2013, White was charged with attempted strangulation of his wife and later found guilty of domestic battery, end quote. So to summarize then, in both the cases of Sittler and White, Wilson not only stood up for both offenders and wrote to state officials, including judges, asking for sentencing leniency for both men, knowing that both were guilty of the sexual assault of minors. Following both men's release from prison for their crimes, both were restored back into ministry within Wilson's orbit, and both men went on, surprise, surprise, to commit further crimes. For his part, in both cases, Wilson, just like he did with Southern slavery as it was and everything else, he never apologized, he never retracted any of his statements, and in the case of Settler, anyway, he said he'd do the same thing all over again. All he's done is double down, dig in, and defend his actions, and lash out at his critics, painting himself 
as the victim in all of this. The last thing I'm going to comment here about both the Sittler and White controversies is that there is a lot more to both cases than I've been able to touch on here, just in the interest of time. If you want to find out more, uh, we mentioned already Rachel Shubin in that Vice article. She did an absolutely unbelievable job of cataloging in exhaustive detail both the Settler and White cases. I mean, she wrote what's essentially a book on it, and it's entitled Analyzing Douglas Wilson's Handling of the Stephen Settler and Jamin White Cases. Her nearly 500-page expose goes into incredible detail and depth. It's got a timeline of both cases. It's got email correspondence between Wilson and judges, as well as investigating officers in both cases, the response by the larger Moscow community, and much, much more. Now, if you want to look at that book by Rachel Shubin, that entire PDF, that is available for free on the MoscowID.net site. All right, let us wrap up this really long look, this in-depth dive at the many scandals that have been associated with Doug Wilson over the decades. I've talked about Wilson and whether or not he fits the profile of a cult leader, or at least could be placed anywhere on the spectrum of cult leaders. We got into this a lot at the end of that first episode. If you remember, I think Amanda Montell, she'd probably agree that many aspects of Wilson's empire, the way he runs it, would be cultish at the very least. It certainly falls somewhere on Hassan's spectrum of influence, I think, for sure. But as we're wrapping up this episode, what can we say about Wilson at this point? We're going to pause here before we get into the next episode, which is, of course, focusing on his harmful theology, his toxic teachings. I think we can make a number of points as we wrap up this episode. First of all, let's zoom out from this question a little bit. It's really interesting, I think, to note Remember that January to December 2004 issue of the Presbyterian and Reformed News, from which I've already quoted extensively? That newsletter devoted page after page of articles to the controversy, the scandals surrounding Wilson and his church and various ministries. Now, just on the face of it, does this sound to you at all like the actions of an honorable Christian pastor, one who leads by example, or are we sliding into that controlling leader or cult leader uh, realm or spectrum. One of the articles states, for example, quote, the Confederation of Reformed Evangelicals, CRE, the ecclesiastical group founded by the Reverend Douglas Wilson, pastor of Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho, will not proceed with the 94 ecclesiastical charges which were filed against him. The charges allege various unethical practices, including lying, stealing, and the misuse of benevolence funds. Several of the charges revolve around the giving of $1,000 in benevolence funds in order to pay off gambling debts. And the article goes on, says, Those charges focus on how the Christchurch session dealt with an illegal gambling casino slash wet bar, the Morton Street Casino, which was managed by a son of one of the church's elders, Dr. Roy Atwood. Dr. Wilson is well known in the Reformed church world for his writings, including books on doctrine, the church, and the family. His numerous articles have appeared in Credenda Agenda, a magazine which he edits, as well as other publications such as Table Talk, the publication of Ligonier Ministries. It concludes, it says, the Idaho pastor has been a controversial figure in Reformed circles, not least of which as a result of his severe criticisms of the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. His theological views have also recently come into question, 
as he has been charged by the Reformed Presbyterian Church in the United States, RPCUS, with heresy with regard to justification and the nature of the church, end quote. The charges against Wilson, filed by various Presbyterian denominations, ended up being 106 pages in length, with another 334 pages of exhibits and supporting evidence. That's the whole thing ended up at something like 440 pages in total. Basically, how the Presbyterians framed it was as follows. What they did is they took the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, as their model or their framework, and then they laid out all their charges against Wilson over against that scaffolding. The article breaks down just a few of the charges as follows. I'll just give you an example of how they framed it, beginning, for example, with the Fifth Commandment. The charges are laid out against Doug Wilson like this. The article says, quote, there are 39 charges of breaking the fifth commandment. These include four general charges of a breach of the commandment, 15 charges related to malfeasance, eight with respect to obstruction of justice, two charges of conduct unbecoming a gospel minister, six related to pastoral tyranny, abuse, and or manipulation, two regarding sessional tyranny, one charge of dereliction of duty, and one charge of violating scripture, with regard to the civil magistrate, with regard to the sixth commandment, there are five charges of carnal threatening, four of sinful anger, and one of railing. And it goes on, it says, with regard to the eighth commandment, there are three charges, one each of stealing, financial malfeasance, and violation of fiduciary trust. And it concludes, it says, there are 32 charges of having violated the ninth commandment, including 21 general charges of a breach of that commandment, eight charges related to slander, and three charges relating to effecting and instituting a breach of the commandment. There is also one standalone charge of hypocrisy, as well as several charges embedded with those above, which speak of hypocrisy. Many of the charges overlap in that they deal with the same incidents, but from the perspective of the various commandments of the Decalogue, end quote. Thus, just merely on the face of it, before we even get into his theology and his, his toxic beliefs, as we already noted in the last episode, I charge that Doug Wilson's track record as a pastor more than disqualifies him to be in charge of a church, let alone a Bible college or a seminary. As we look at some of these aspects of his theology, keep in mind that each one not only has caused controversies over the years, each one has a level of toxicity attached to it that either causes things like religious trauma syndrome, or it creates a culture which is rife for abuses, as we've already seen. As we conclude then, we're going to let recent guest Kate West, we're going to let her have the last word as we conclude this episode. Remember, she grew up in a stay-at-home daughter, Christian homeschooling environment that was inspired by the biblical patriarchal teachings of Doug Wilson and others in that movement. Now, she points out in her Religion Dispatches article on the subject that Quote, Beth Allison Barr, in her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, writes, now quoting Barr, complementarianism is patriarchy, and patriarchy is about power. And Kate West goes on to say, if patriarchy, and therefore complementarianism, is about power, then this ideology sets up a power dynamic that creates an environment for abusers to thrive and victims to be disbelieved. For those of us who grew up in and have now left patriarchal or complementarian communities, it's no surprise that a denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention 
would have systemic problems with abuse. We've experienced this over and over, and yet many in the church continue to argue that abusers are only a few bad apples, as if the institution itself doesn't create the conditions for abuse to exist. And she concludes by saying, One example of a patriarchal church community that's been entangled with allegations of abuse for decades is Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, led by patriarchal theologian and pastor Doug Wilson. End quote. She later points out that, quote, an environment in which women have no power and no voice is an environment in which they're more vulnerable to abuse, not less, end quote. Fortunately, however, as I mentioned a little bit at the end of the first episode, there's a number of both women and men, too, of course, who have escaped Wilson's high control group. The good news is not only have they escaped, they are now speaking up and speaking out about the abuses they have suffered while they were a part of the group. If this describes you at all, or if you have any questions, thoughts, or comments about this or any other episode in this series on Doug Wilson and his influence, please reach out to me. I'd love to hear what you have to say. As I mentioned before, you can find me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can follow me or send me a DM there. You can also send me an email through the MindShift Podcast Facebook page. That's a public Facebook page. And as I mentioned before, you can also support the show on Patreon and become part of our closed MindShift Podcast Facebook group. And in fact, we're going to have, as I talked about earlier, we're going to have Kate West coming back in January to do our first MindShift Zoom call. So if you have any thoughts or comments for Kate, you can be a part of that call round about the third weekend or so of January. Don't forget too, we're going to take a break till about the middle or so of January. We're going to come back with that episode on Doug Wilson's toxic theology, his toxic and harmful teachings. So look forward to that. I will reconnect with you all after the break. I hope you've had a good productive holiday season with friends and family and i will see you again as we pick back up our research our deep dives into doug wilson in 2023